This is the best, 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 best practices in education and Odyssey School podcast. Let's fly away in a cloud. We'll go down to Odyssey. We'll learn some cool new things and new opportunities. Because Odyssey is made of magic, made of magic. This podcast aims to offer professional resources, practical tools, and inspiring conversations to teachers and parents in their quest for excellent education. And the trees are rainbow, and you'll see the corn every now and then because that's not weird at all. Welcome to episode seven of Best Practices, an Odyssey School podcast. I am Megan Martell, and I will be your host today. And I'm very excited to be here in the studio with Grant Yost. Grant is our high school mathematics teacher, and he graduated from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga with um, a BS in applied mathematics through their honors college and a focus in STEM education, I should say. Uh, while at UTC, Grant did research in the field of fractional calculus with the mathematics department and has two papers published in his name on the topic of fractional differential equations. Grant also has a great appreciation for logic and puzzles and the thought processes that people use to solve problems. And we're going to get to hear a lot more about that today when we talk about his presentation on mental bias. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say mental bias? Sure. So when we talk about mental bias, it's more about how you are taking in and interpreting information that is being presented to you rather than how you are outwardly expressing bias toward a particular group or um, topic or people. Um, so it's, it's more about what type of things are happening in a person's mind as they learn um, that will affect the ways that they learn and the ways that they are um, just gathering new information. So just to say that in a different way, or again, <laughs> it's not the kind of implicit bias, like when we see a white person, we assume certain things. It's more a, the bias in the way your brain works. Right. So it's an internal mm -hmm. experience. So why don't you start by just telling us one of the exercises that you did with the teachers to help walk us through recognizing our own ridiculous mental bias. Sure. So um, this activity I really like to do with, with adults and students and anybody really, um, where I just put a sequence of numbers on a whiteboard or something. For this particular exercise, I just use the numbers two, four, and six. And when I asked the teachers to figure out what rule I had in my mind, um, their guidelines were that they could write down another sequence of numbers and I could come check it and I would say, yes, that follows the same rule that I'm thinking of or no, that does not follow the same rule that I'm thinking of. And they could do that as many times as they wanted before coming up with their actual guess of what the rule was. Most people, when they see that, that rule, think, oh, it's, it's even numbers going up. So they would test 8, 10, 12, or, um, you know, 22, 24, 26. And so a lot of people started testing things like that. And then I'd be like, yes, that follows my rule. Um, some people started testing odd numbers. And 
looking for, well, maybe it's just the fact that it's going up by two that matters, so they would test three, five, seven, and that also follows the rule. The rule that was in my mind was that it is just an increasing sequence of numbers. Which is just so hilariously simple. Yes. It's like hair-pullingly simple. (laughs) Yeah. And so everybody started to get really specific because as soon as they see it, they think they know what it is, and they just were checking things to try to confirm in their brains what this pattern is rather than looking for, well, what is this pattern not? Cool. So you went on to then explain to us what confirmation bias is. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. So confirmation bias, the definition that I think of is it's a tendency to look for evidence in support of or interpret evidence as a confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. So um, to simplify that, I guess it's when you have something in your mind that you're like, I think I know what this is, or I think I experience this in a certain way, you're always picking out and looking for information to just support your current hypothesis rather than thinking about things that could disprove your hypothesis. And why might it be valuable for math students to be aware of confirmation bias? That's a great question. So when math students have a topic that they think that they get, that they're feeling good about, then a lot of times they only want questions that support them in the way that they understand that topic. So they might not fully grasp a concept or might not fully understand all of the, the facets of a particular topic that we're discussing in class, and but they want to support what they do know. So when a teacher such as myself throws kind of a curveball question at them that asks about the same topic but in a different way, that's when they're really thrown off. They're like, oh, I thought I knew this, but now I'm realizing that maybe I don't. Um, And there's some value in having students realize they don't know things. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You talked a little bit, and I'm sure, you know, for our listeners who follow education, they have heard the phrase culture of failure. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you maybe connect those two things for us, this idea of culture of of failure and the metacognitive tools that you use with bias? Sure. Um, So when I talk about a culture of failure, I talk about it, and I think it's really, really relevant in any math class, and in any class specifically, but I see it so much in math classes, is where students are so afraid of saying a wrong answer or saying something that is incorrect, and they think they're going to be judged, and they think they're going to, like, that they're going to fail the class if they say something that's wrong. Um, And I try really hard to create a culture in my classroom where all answers are celebrated, and all answers are accepted and supported by other students. Now, is is getting to a place of understanding and being able to find the correct answer important? Yes, but we can get there by listening to all answers and then having conversations around them, and that's where real learning takes place, is when you can address somebody's answer no matter how close or how far off from the true answer it is, and be like, let's have a conversation about this and talk about um, how your brain got there and what we can do to sort of rewire things to make, to give you a better understanding. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. I'm curious, and I, I don't know, well, I'm just curious. 
Have you ever seen culture of failure go too far where parent, uh, students are just failing left and right and celebrating and they never stop to really push themselves to get to the right answer, which we do actually want them to get to the right answer in a math classroom, ultimately. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, as a high school teacher, you see a lot of students who take that and kind of run with it in the joking way, um, where they're like, oh, I'm going to say this thing that's way off and just have fun with it. But that allows for like some humor and they usually know what they're doing. Um, the biggest way that I've seen it have negative impacts occasionally is when students are just then not concerned about their mastery of a topic because they are they become really comfortable with like oh I don't I don't understand this and that's okay and then they don't put that retroactive effort into going back and fixing the mis- misconceptions they have and trying to master that content um, and I think that's a very important part of this process we you know we need to fail and we need to struggle and we need to be challenged But then, and that's okay when that should be celebrated, but then afterward we need to come back and be like, how can we learn from that? And that last step is the thing that some students um, have a hard time with coming back to unless they're pushed toward it. And that's your job. Yes. (laughs) And you do it so well. Thank you. So another thing that you talked about in your presentation about mental biases were the uh, listening gap or the listening bias. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that is and then also how you introduced it to us? So the listening gap, um, the basic way that I try to describe it to people is that everybody learns with their own perspective in mind. And everybody is trying to make something fit into their pre-existing schema in their brains. Um, So the way that I introduced it in my presentation was I told everybody that we were going to be drawing a bunny, and then I gave everybody um, steps to drawing the bunny, like starting with draw a circle for the head and then put an oval in this position under the bunny with the idea that if everybody followed those steps, that everybody's bunnies should end up looking the same in the end. But they didn't. They all looked very, very different. And the reason is because everybody has their own image of a bunny in their mind, and so everybody is sort of kind of contorting their pictures to make it look more like a realistic bunny to their brain. And that's where the listening gap can come into play because they're not listening just to my instructions, but they're also listening to their pre-existing knowledge of what they think a bunny looks like. And how does that apply to the classroom? So in the classroom, um, the way that I see it the most often is that students bring in their preconceptions about what something is or what something may be before they learn it and as they are learning it. So You know, in math class, when we're talking about linear functions or we're talking about something, people already have their idea of like, oh, yeah, I think I know generally what that is, even though there may be things that are um, a little bit off about the way that they understand it. Um, So for students, it's it sometimes hinders their learning ability because they're attached to these preconceptions that may be misconceptions about what something is before they learn it. And it also can work to your benefit as a teacher in recognizing and building on that schema and that pre-existing knowledge as well. Yeah. 
So um, you talked a little bit about how these ideas and the, the sort of general umbrella concept of mental bias and being aware of that as an educator can influence curricular development and lesson planning. Can you outline that for us? Sure. So um, in terms of developing curriculum and planning lessons, I think it's really important to give opportunities for students to fail and to be challenged and to metacognate about how they understand things, and that applies for for both biases, absolutely. And um, the reason that I find that to be so important is because you need to have times in your class where students know that it's a safe time to, to not get the right answer and that it's okay to, to discuss things. So planning intentional time within a class to have these discussions, to talk about the confusing things, to talk about the challenges. Um, it's also really important to teach material as like introducing it by addressing students' con- misconceptions or preconceptions about something already. So like, hey, what do you guys know about this? And talking about that and breaking that down and then using that as a lead-in to the topic, being like, yes, some of you have some really great ideas about this. Some of you have some really great ideas about this that aren't quite actually what you might think they are um, in relation to this topic. And with planning assessment, um, you know, we need to plan assessment in ways where we are looking for both the areas where students are strong and also both the areas where students are struggling. Um, So for me, I try to incorporate kind of off-the-wall topics or questions about a topic um, that may be something that a student hasn't seen before, but really challenges their understanding in a different way to see, like, do you really understand this concept or are you just able to you know, follow this process that you learned in class without thinking about it very much. Um, I think it's super important to teach students using multiple representations so you can talk about, like, this is what you may think about it. And then when I show you this topic, you know, as a, as a function, as an algebraic equation, this is what your mind might go to. But also, it can be represented on a graph, and this is how these can connect. And that will help students recognize those areas of um, disconnect or those misconceptions that they have in their mind about what that might be. Grant, that sounds amazing. Your students are so lucky to have you. (laughs) Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and wrap, and I really encourage our listeners to check out Grant's presentation. They will be linked, or it will be linked, rather, in our liner notes, and there's some great memes in there and also explicit directions for how to do some of these strategies that Grant described today. And I want to thank you for listening and for joining us and have a wonderful rest of your day. Join us next week for another amazing interview with an Odyssey School teacher. This has been Best Practices in Education, an Odyssey School podcast. It was recorded here in our music studio in Asheville, North Carolina at Odyssey School, engineered by our music director, River Gergarian, and the original theme music was created by the Misfits of Cragberry, an Odyssey student band. Let's fly away in a cloud. Made of magic, made of magic, made of magic, Odyssey is
weird at all. Hey mom, I love you. I'm glad your recovery is going well.